welcome. You're in the wrong place at the right time. I'm Brad Hicks with Dan Zasvorka. Here I am. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so why don't you read that last part and uh, we'll start the show. (laughs) I'll read the last part and you can, you can, you can tell me how it doesn't fit. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Brad. We're doing editing online or on on mic or whatever you call it. So Dan, uh, in this podcast, Dan takes a deeper look at his own wrong place experiences and and he gleans from many of them, uh, many of those experiences, um, unsuspected and surprising outcomes. Um, So sit back, relax, and enjoy Dan's stories and see if you can't relate to how being in the wrong place may have been just the right time in your own life journey. I like that, Brad. That's good. That's good stuff there at the end. <laughs> I'm not going to criticize that. Beautiful. All right. So, all right. I'm hoping we can, we can get some stuff out of that conversation. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Cue the music. Boom. recording all that stuff about the circus and all, yeah, all yeah. down the drain for dog and pony act yeah here it comes <laughs> yeah. uh the pony is pooping on the floor back there <laughs> never mind <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> forgive dan it's early in the morning it's very early it's a super snowy and cold day uh it's like five six inches fell on the ground last night Oh, it's, but it's a good day. It's close to Thanksgiving. So a good day to get start, uh, just start in the habit of giving thanks for all the great things. I, I'm really thankful for the snow out there because we have had not had much more. So yeah. any way we can get it, it's good stuff. Here's good quiet. Aim this way. I'm quiet today. Yeah. Not for long. Brad's pensive and once I get going. Bad dreams or something. Once I get going, (laughs) you can't stop me. (laughs) All right. Well, you can talk about uh, me sharing about Mexico. So last time in the podcast, Dan shared his story of Mexico City. One of his one of his Mexico City stories. What did you talk about last time? I just introed going down there. The train, the bus, getting there, learning language school, those kind of things, yeah. setting up uh, our time of living there. Remember the story. Remember the story about uh, playing some street game with Rogelio. Rogelio, Rogelio. ah, Rogelio. yeah. Tell uh, us the Rogelio story. Okay. Well, Rogelio was a young pastor that was pastoring the house church that we were a part of in Mexico City. And one... I don't know if we were going out to visit or we were walking home from uh, worship on a Sunday, worship service, but I was walking with Rogelio and there was these teenagers in the street. There weren't a lot of cars in the streets because they were dirt roads and, oh, I think this one was paved. Um, And we were walking up the hill and these teenagers were playing this game and they called it uh, Tribble, I think, Tribble. Yeah, which is like uh, clover. And basically, you get uh, 
two guys leaning in with their heads together. I think this is how yeah, it's so long ago, but and you're bent over and you're you're grasping your arms and holding yourselves together. And the other team runs as fast as they can and jumps up and lands right on top of you and tries to break you apart or break you down. It's sort of like that old thing, uh, Buck Buck. Yeah, it was kind of a Mexican version of that. And uh, it, it, so they're playing and, and we walking by and I'm like, that looks really fun. And they, so they invite me and Rogelio to play this game with them. I'm probably, uh, I don't know, 30-something years old, and Rogelio's younger than me. And uh, so we we form a team, me and Rogelio, and they're running, they're running as fast as they – and they jump on us and try to break us down, and we're holding up. And then we, we break down, and then they do the same thing. The funny part of this story is that every I, my Spanish wasn't super great yet, and every time they would run, they would repeat a phrase, a different phrase, and so they'd say this phrase, and they'd run, and they'd jump on you, and so I was listening for these phrases, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to say the phrases when, when, when it's my turn, and so when it come my turn, I remembered what the phrase was before and I'd say the phrase out and they would all laugh really loud and I'd run and I'd jump on top and try to break down their their clover. And this went on. We probably played for half an hour, 45 minutes. And I was saying all of these these phrases, the same ones they were saying. And so the game ended and we shook their hands and that was really cool, neat contact with them. And then Rahalia and I started walking away uh, up the hill some more, probably to my house. And he turns to me and he says, he's like, Dan, I thought you were, I thought you were a Chris Hester. And I'm like, I am. And he's like, do you know what you were saying back there? And I said, no, I don't know what I was saying. He's like, you were saying all these curse words, all this gross stuff before you would land on and jump on there that you were just repeating every dirty word in, in Spanish there was. And I'm like, oh no, oh my gosh, no wonder they had so much fun and were laughing so much. But uh, I was, that was a little embarrassed because Rogelio was pretty straight laced. So he wasn't yelling the phrases when he jumped He on. was not, and I was. Yelling. I was totally into him. And, 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 you know, the neighbors are here and this. I mean, everybody lives right next to each other, right on the street. and. It was quite a uh, <laughs> quite an interesting thing. Yeah. Uh, let me tell you a little more about Rogelio, uh, kind of an, another adventure we had. Uh, he, I don't know, he just had a way of talking to people. He didn't always listen well, I don't think, but he really knew how to, to speak to people. We went to this one house, little house, with a family of six people. And their son was in a wheelchair and, and they had just been through the ringer and, and they knew nothing about Jesus or the faith or anything about that. And uh, he had been me. He met a couple times with them and he brought me along this day. And we are sitting around talking with them and they're asking questions. And then he just stops in the middle of the talk and he says, I think this is the time for you to give your life to. And I'm like, oh, they're just going to push this away and reject this. And the man, the father of the house says, I, th I think you're right. We're going to do it. And the entire family <laughs> 
got down, we all got on our knees and the entire family became uh, Christians, mm. asked God into their lives and, and, and said they now wanted to follow Jesus, mm. this entire family. And Rogelio just, he just, man, he just made it happen. And I couldn't believe it. I'm like, wow, I've never seen this before. And this is really cool. And so we walked out of there and we were like arm in arm. I had my arm around him, which in Mexico, it's just more acceptable to be more, more affectionate. And we were walking down the street arm in arm and, and just praising God and jumping and going, that was just like, that's like the book of Acts. This is like totally cool. And uh, it was very, very neat. Uh, How did you meet Rogelio? He he was uh, I was introduced to him by Frank, who was running the program down there. And Rogelio uh, was the student or young pastor of this house church for a little okay. while. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Bosques, what happened in Bosques with uh, some kind of accident? Ah, well, this uh, neighborhood that we lived in, as I said before, was a squatters neighborhood that had. Uh, where they had been battling with the Mexican government to take over this land and have some land for themselves. And so we had, an, uh, our neighborhood was called Bosques de Pedregal. Now there's actually a, a really ritzy neighborhood named the same thing just uh, down the hill. So whenever I would mention it to, to people when we were walking around Mexico City, they'd go, oh, yeah. No. What a nice place. And we're like, no, not that one. <laughs> this is this is the other one. This is another one. Um, so but one uh, one of the things that uh, most people in our neighborhood would work uh, down in the city and every morning they'd get up early and go a block up the hill because it was super. These are super steep hills we're living on, and they would uh, catch the bus down into the city. And the government uh, would uh, have all this public transportation that was very cheap, actually, in Mexico City, and was a really good system. However, they did not uh, really maintain the vehicles very well. So one morning, all the people from our neighborhood, a lot of people from our neighborhood went up the hill and got on the bus. And the buses, they would pack them full. I mean, you would they would get as many people as possibly you can get on a bus, not just sitting down, but standing in the aisles and even hanging out. Like I rode some of those buses. I loved it because I would ride with one foot on the step and the rest of my body hanging outside the door and I'm holding the handle. And I liked it because it was an adventure, but it would not be the best uh, position to so, save for safety. Yeah. So anyway, they get on the bus and it starts heading down the hill, and there's pretty. It's really steep at certain parts, and they're going down one of the steeper parts, and the bus loses its brakes. And it's packed with people. It's packed, probably hundreds uh, something people in this bus, wow. and it's It's just screaming down the hill. And uh, the bus driver can't, and the brakes aren't working. And so the bus driver, the only thing he can do is he picks a, a building and he slams into the wall, into wall the, the wall of the building. Wow. And uh, just devastating. And actually ended up injuring dozens and dozens of people and killing uh, at least probably 15 people. 
Now, you were on this bus? No, I wasn't. On I wasn't bus. on this bus, but I lived in this neighborhood. So okay. here's what happened. So one of the things that the government was doing then and maybe still does now, I don't know, uh, is they don't like bad press about what they're not doing well. So they would often, if it was a, an accident with public transportation, they send people there to steal bodies like They'll put them on an ambulance and they you'll never see them again, a dead body. And so the government will report that only three people died when actually like 15 people died. And people don't know where their family member is because they're dead, but the government has taken those bodies away. And this happened in this accident. The government said three people died in this accident in the newspapers when actually a lot more people than that died. And um and then they would also not take responsibility for the injuries of the people. And so the people actually immediately after the accident, they did go to the hospital. But then the government says we're not going to pay for these injuries. So they sent all of these people home on in ambulances and cars. And so I'm Kelly and I are sitting in our house looking out the window and we see all these people with bloody faces and and bandages around their heads, and people carried on stretchers, and people limping, and it was just like, it was like uh, they were coming out of a war zone or something, and they were walking through our neighborhood back to their houses, and, and being carried back to their houses, and uh, this was really a tragic scene for me, uh, and then the local leader of the neighborhood got on the bullhorn and he's like, we're going to march against the government. They cannot do this to us. They have to take responsibility for their, their poor maintenance of these vehicles. They need to take responsibility. So he got the, the, gov uh, the neighborhood rallied to march several days against the government and put out there the truth of what happened. And, and, and sure enough, after two or three days, uh, the government gave in and sent ambulances to uh, up above on the street up above because they couldn't really come into our neighborhood. And then air, this whole flow of people carrying stretchers and and on crutches and people with head injuries and they were all streamed back out of our neighborhood, streamed by our house. We're watching all these people get back into the ambulance. This is a few days on. after. This is a few days after. And <laughs> the these people, some of these people probably died in the meantime. Um, but the government sent ambulances that they could crawl into to take them back to the hospital. Yeah, it was, <laughs> you have to battle. And the government was responsible for this, that the people pay taxes for this, you know, these mm -hmm, right. things. Um, and I remember during that time, I went to uh, one of the families that lost people who died was a family of seven kids who lost both their parents in the bus accident. They died. And I went to this wake of this family. It was so tragic. And I still feel it's so, so sad that these seven kids were orphaned. And the oldest of them was like 19 or something. And he had to become the parents of those other kids of that family and start gay, uh, working to get money for that family. And we were there mourning with, I was, it was, it was really tragic what was happening to, because they were so poor that the government didn't care about them. 
they didn't even know where their parents were because their parents were two of the bodies that had been disappeared. They call them disappeared bodies. Yeah. yeah. And the families never found out where they were. I don't know if they ever did. I don't know if they ever did, but during that time they did. Maybe later they were able to. I don't know. That's a tragic story. Yeah, it was it was hard. Oh. So you had a friend named Wolfrano. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was the owner of the room that we rented. And uh, tell me the story of Wolfrano, your, your, your release from something. Ah, yeah. <laughs> well, um, as I, I think, I don't know if I mentioned it before, but in our neighborhood, uh, most people were gone working during the week and on Saturday, and they would come home Saturday night, and Sunday would be a day uh, to be with their families, but there would also be a lot of men out in the streets drinking. They just drink the, from Saturday night through Sunday uh, for their one day off. So one day I was walking with Wolfrano through the neighborhood, and the, there were this group of guy, men drinking, and they wanted to be hospitable to me, and they saw that I was uh, gringo, and so they invited me to drink with them. And Wolfrano was with me, and he could see that this was not going to maybe end well because they were already pretty drunk and so he uh he started talking with one of them and they're going back and forth and they're like no we want him to drink with us and we want to share our hospitality Wolfrano's going no we got to go somewhere and eventually I see Wolfrano reach his hand into his pocket pull out some bills some peso bills and push them into the hand of one of the guys in the circle and then he turns to me and says, okay, let's let's go. And so he basically bought me, uh, he, he, he ransomed me from this group because he, he saw that maybe it was not going to be uh, a healthy thing for me. So what, what, what could happen if you would have refused to, to drink with them? Uh, they would have been really offended and uh, because it's important for them to offer hospitality. And they also may have taken some of their anger for not receiving hospitality in the United States. A lot of them had worked in the United States in the past. And so they might put some of that anger on me. Like, why didn't you, actually, I, I would, I drank with groups of men at other times and they would a- always end up asking me, they're like, don't we take good care of you? Don't we feed you? Don't we give you hospitality? And uh, I would say, yes, you do. You're really caring for me well. And they said, why, when we go to your country, do people not care for us? Do they, they hate us. They, they look down on us. They don't give us hospitality. Why is that? And I would always be stuck in this, like, you know, 10 to 12 men around me. And I'd, I'd just look at them and I'd have to say, I'm sorry. I don't know what to say. I apologize for my country. I apologize for our lack of hospitality to strangers. I thank you for the hospitality you've given me. I didn't. I didn't know what else to do. I couldn't justify it. I really couldn't. Yeah. So that was the day that uh, you got ransomed, and Wolfrano paid paid uh, paid off the drunk guys who, <laughs> yeah. who wanted you to drink with them. Yep. Did we talk about a day with Lorenzo? A day I don't with think Lorenzo. so. I met a guy down there in my visiting different households during on Saturdays, and his name was Lorenzo, and. Uh, he uh, had a family of two daughters and his wife, and they lived in a miserable hovel. 
with a dirt floor and rocks all piled up around and some corrugated tar paper for a house. And he was, uh, he was an alcoholic and he had a job as a security guard, but he would come home on the weekend and spend most of that money, not on his family for their food and those things. He would spend it on alcohol. Or, and when he was really low on money, uh, one of the hardcore alcoholics, what they do, in, in at least in Mexico City and I think in other parts of the world, is he would go to the pharmacy and buy a bottle of rubbing alcohol, which is like 98% proof or 99% proof that you can't drink because it'll kill you. But he would buy that and then he would go get a, a large Coke pour out some of the Coke and he would pour some of that rubbing alcohol in the Coke mm. and he would drink that. And people and guys who alcoholics who use rubbing alcohol, they're toward the end of their days because mm. it does affect their nervous system. Uh, you can tell who they are because their hands are bent and gnarled because of the nerve damage that they've received. And Lorenzo was on that road. And so I wanted to help him because I, I felt compassion for him and for his, his family. Uh, they were so miserable. And so one day I, I had talked him into changing his life and going into rehab. And there, down the hill, there was a Catholic church that had a rehab. And so I told him I would come over on Saturday and I would go with him to the rehab and, and help him sign, up, sign in and, and change his life his, his life with the alcohol and he agreed. And so I came over early on Saturday and we started out and he started coming up with one thing he had to do at, before he went into rehab after another. And so I, I was good with it. <clears throat> I followed, I followed him around and we would go from one end of the neighborhood, walking miles and miles, just doing these things that he said he had to do. He was avoiding it. And and, and as the day went on, I, I like six, eight hours in of hanging out with him, I got him down the hill and to the, to the entrance of the rehab. And he was right there. And he, he's like, yeah, I want to do this. I got to change my life. I want to do this. And I'm like, yeah, I'm with you. I'll, I'll hang, I'll be there for you. And he almost like had one foot over the threshold and he was ready to go in. And just then he's like, no, I got to, oh, I got to go do one more thing. And, and, and I knew he just wasn't going to say, I got to do one more thing and one more thing. And, and he turned around and I had put so much emotional energy into this and turned around and he just walked away. And I, I followed him for a while, but the, the day ended up being like a 10, 12 hour day for me of hanging with Lorenzo. And in the you end, were with him the whole time, I was with him the whole time. And got so closer to him as a friend, but he, he just couldn't do it and he wouldn't do it. And did he ever? And I think he probably died a year or two after that. I had seen him a couple times after that, but he was always just sloshing drunk. What are your emotions when you think back on that story? Uh, what, what did you get out of it at the time? I, I was, I don't know. I, I, couldn't understand. I talked to God. I had spent so much energy. I went home to Kelly. I just cried and cried. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I can't believe this guy would. He's, he won't change his life. His family's going to be miserable for their just, their situations horrific. And, and so I, I, I didn't understand. 
I was kind of like Job or Jonah. I'm like, God, I don't know what you're doing because I've put all my energy into into this man and it's in my heart. It's just breaking. Yeah, yeah no happy ending really for that. There story. was no happy ending right, there. Right, right. And he, I, he, he Maybe uh, there was actually some release when his fa- when he died and his family maybe found some release. I don't know, but they I don't know what ended up happening. Mm-hmm. Tell us about when you uh, you you first went. Uh, wasn't long after you entered the uh, what what you've you've called kind of the cardboard cardboard city or what what. But what about their hospitality? Um, one of the things that profoundly changed me and Kelly and my daughters in Mexico was the hospitality. I was just talking about this yesterday with a a guy from Mexico, how important that is for the Mexican culture and people, the hospitality, and how that's gone somewhat gone away because of all the violence and the cartels and all of that's going on in Mexico these days. This was back in the 80s and one of the things that's really profound is when hospitality is shown you by people uh, in desperate poverty. And I would go uh, <clears throat> visiting houses on Saturday, and I would receive so much hospitality. It 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 just changed my heart. Um, when I the first time I was with Frank, the, the the guy who was running the program, we were visiting some families in the neighborhood. He was just introducing me to them. And we were in one house and I hadn't eaten in anybody's house yet. And we, in language school, we had gotten sick in at Cuernavaca. We had gotten really sick from some food. And uh, I was sitting there and there was dirt floor, uh, simple house. The dog was running around inside and the dog jumped up on the table, put its paws on the table. And I'm thinking, I'm praying. I'm like, God, I if they offer me food, I don't think I could eat it because I don't want to be... If I do this in every house I visit, I'm going to be so sick this year. I, I, I don't want to do this, Lord. And I just felt like I was saying, this is this is important to these people. If you want to live here and be amongst them, you have to receive their hospitality. And so that very first day, I re- they brought a meal and some sodas, and we ate. There. Um, and I ate, and, and, and I told God, I will eat at every place that offers me food for the rest of the year. I will do every, I will, anybody who offers me hospitality, which included drinking with guys on the street. And I did. And I would eat up to four or five meals on Saturdays at different houses that they would, they had very little food for themselves. And yet they wanted to show me this deep hospitality. And I, this is, I don't know if it's a miracle or what, but, I never got sick from never eating got, yeah. at anybody's house. We got sick from eating pizza or Chinese food, things that weren't Mexican food in Mexico. We got really sick, but from hospitality that the poor showed us, we never we never ended up getting sick from that. And I I thank God for that. But it changed us. It it, it changed my daughters when we came back to the states. If someone came to visit my littlest daughter, Hannah, she would run into her room and grab one of her toys, her special toys. And if they had a a kid with them, she would run out and she would give the toy to the kid. (laughs) And they're like, no, don't do that. Don't do that. We're like, no, she she learned this in Mexico. This is hospitality. And she learned that this is what you do. And 
you share with people that come visit you. And it, uh, it was a profound experience for all of us. So the hospitality was something that really, really stood out and, uh, uh, impacted your whole family. Yeah. And, and to this day that I would say that my, that was the biggest thing that I learned in Mexico. And I, I know people say this, but it was true for me that I did end up learning more than I gave down there. That's always the case. Yeah. That's always the case. And this was that hospitality, which is talked about all over the Bible. I mean, in the New Testament, in Hebrews, it says, "Show hospit- don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. And that's what people did with me. They showed hospitality to me as a stranger, not just as a stranger, as a di- uh, person they didn't know, but as a stranger from a different country, from a different culture, from a dominant culture. They were poor. I was rich in many respects, and yet they showed me hospitality. We had a phrase down there that was, what the poor need to know is that the rich have needs. And what the rich need to know is that the poor have resources. And their resources are hospitality. Their resources are community. Um, Their resources are desperate need. of. So they have resources uh, that they depend on, that rich, that we often forget and let go of as rich people. And that we can we can learn a great deal from. Yeah, yeah, a tremendous amount. What about the gang war in your uh, in your neighborhood? Um, one, uh, we uh, there were youth gangs in our neighborhoods since, and they were new neighborhoods, so these gangs were always battling for uh, territory, I guess. And I remember it was Christmas time, and I wanted to get Kelly something special because she was just enduring a lot of this living with the poor and 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 she needed something beautiful something nice and so I went out uh, down the hill and I went to a like a real fancy mall and I can't remember what I got or some special gift that would cheer her up and they put it in a really nice bag I don't know like Neiman Marcus here or something I don't know what it was but it was this really fancy bag and I came back up the hill and it had taken me a long time and it was dark. And so I was walking into my neighborhood. And so I was walking back into the neighborhood with this really fancy bag in this cardboard shack neighborhood. And uh, these two teenage guys who were, had bottles in their hands, but they weren't holding bottles like they were going to drink from the bottles. They were holding them from the top like they were going to break them. Or hold, you know. And I, I thought that's strange. And they were walking toward me with these bottles. And I was walking toward them. And um, right about when they reached me, they stopped. And I kind of said, I stopped. I said, Buenas noches. And I'm like, are they considering hitting me on the head with those bottles? I don't know. I, I was a little bit uh, nervous. And, I, and, and then I kept walking and they kept walking. And I knew they were thinking about it. And uh, I got back to our little house or one room and it was dark and I'm like, did they already go to bed? This is strange. It's only like six o'clock and it's dark. And so I, I got, went into the house and realized that they had J- Kelly and the kids had turned off the lights and were, they were crouched down on the floor. And I'm like, what's going on? What's going on? 
and they're like, they're having a gang war in front of our house and they're throwing bottles and rocks and people are beating each other up and we turn off our lights. We're so scared. We didn't want them to know this is where the gringos live. And we're just peeking out the window and I'm like, oh my gosh, I just walked by two guys with bottles and, and they were, looked like they wanted to hit me on the head. And uh, we were really scared. But back then, this is in the eighties, a gang war usually was bottles and rocks. It didn't include guns. And I think the unfortunate thing for Mexico these days is it often includes guns and knives and real violence. That was a scary time for your family. Yeah. Kelly was really scared. <laughs> so yeah. God looked out for us though. I, I feel like the whole time we were there that it was amazing that we didn't get sick that my kids who made mud tortillas in this horrible dirt that was contaminated by everything uh, didn't get sick. We didn't have violence perpetrated against us. Uh, it was, yeah, we, had, we had to boil our water. We, it was uh, pretty, I felt really cared for. Yeah. You were really watched over during that time. Um, definitely felt the same way in India when I went there too. Yeah. Right. It, yeah. Put I mean, that on there, but no, but it, it 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 doesn't always happen. I don't think God owes that to me or anything. I I really think that it's it's God's grace. But even if we would have gotten sick a lot and had violent things happen to us, I think it still would have been God would have shown us what He wanted us to learn, and it still would have been something we still would have connected with the people. But it. It just happened that way, and I'm really grateful. Well, let's take a little break. Um, I'm going to go heat my coffee up. It's cold. Okay. I'll be right back. All right. Was there another one you said? Just talk about the dog situation. Dogs, dogs, and more dogs. Okay. There was so many dogs. <laughs> yeah, let me just talk about the dogs. Um, at that time, in our neighborhood, everybody had a dog or actually many, some people had many dogs. And these dogs were almost all of them loose. And some were really big and mean and some were small. And But I, I, I actually grown in this and I, I think I've gotten better but I used to be terrified of dogs and so my biggest fear was walking the two miles from the house church to our house and if I had to do it alone it was even worse if I was with Kelly and my two daughters the dogs would not bother us as much it's weird but if I were like alone mm -hmm. this lone guy I, I know my my nervous vibes were <laughs> going out to the dogs and they would come after me and they were mean. And, and, and so the thing that you did in this neighborhood was you, for me, I carried these lava rocks, these, our whole neighborhood is volcanic. I carried these pockets full of lava rocks because if a dog came to me, the only thing that they would run away with is if you tried to throw, if you pretended to throw a rock at them or actually did throw a rock yeah. at them. And so my rocks, these rocks were my weapons, and I would be walking with these rock pockets full of rocks. 
uh, and sometimes they wouldn't they they wouldn't stop. You some of them were so mean, and they would come after you, and they would not stop. And I was terrified. So so would they would they actually uh, bite? Yeah, a few times they would uh, they nipped at me or would try to bite me, and I would try to get out of the way, or their owners would call That's them terrifying. off. Terrifying! I was scared. I was really scared. That's not a small deal. Oh, and and there were so many, and it there were like each block had uh, from maybe fifty dogs each section of road. I mean, there were so many, and and and, and some of them were running around in packs. They belong to people. They belong to people. Some of them didn't belong to people, yeah. and but they were all mating with each other and create, producing more dogs. And so one of the issues of our neighborhood was there were so many dogs that uh, years later, when I went back, maybe uh, five or six years later, I went back to visit the neighborhood, and there were not that many dogs. And so I asked the people, I said, "Why aren't?" where are all the dogs? Where did all the dogs go? And they said, well, the government came in and they knew there was a huge problem with dogs in the neighborhoods. So they came in and they, every dog they could catch, they injected with this sterilization uh, drug or whatever it is to sterilize these dogs. And they were just catching these dogs and, and injecting them. And so it actually, those dogs died out and it, got the population of dogs in the neighborhood under control. Um, so it worked. It worked. <laughs> but uh, our house church, uh, the family there, Roberto and Inez and their kids, they had a dog and their dog was fearless. I just felt like their dog was more fearless than other dogs. And we would be like in their half built living room sort of thing, uh, with open windows and stuff and, and their dog would be in the back and would hear something and it would, we'd be singing and lower listening to a sermon and it would jump up and struggle through the window and run across the room, across people and people are yelling and stuff. And then it would push its way through the, the next window out to the street to get out there. Cause it heard something. And it was always just like this weird fiasco that in the middle of the service and his dog would chase people down the street. And I'm like, one day I, we were eating and I said, Roberto, you have, you have the, the most, the meanest dog on the street. And he's like, yeah. He said, and then he waved me toward him. And, he's, and, he, and he, he whispered to me, he said, he said, don't, don't tell anybody, but he doesn't have any teeth. I'm like, what? He's like, he has no teeth in his mouth. And I'm like, but I've seen him bite people. He said, yeah, he just gums. He just gums them. And I'm like, oh, I laugh so hard. We laugh so hard. It's this fearless dog with no teeth. And, uh, but he would, he, he would not back down from other dogs or people. And it was, it was pretty funny. So that's my story about dogs, that. Dogs. Dogs, dogs, and more dogs. Yeah. All right. And finally, let's talk about shoes let's talk about american <laughs> women's shoes <laughs> oh this story yeah uh we had been living there for maybe six months and we would go to the house church and one sunday a group of american church people came to visit i don't know frank invited them or, or somehow they came and uh they were from s somewhere in the states and 
uh, we were sharing and translating for them. And in the middle of the service, we were sharing Thanksgivings. And this one woman from this American group got up and she started sharing this story about how she went shopping for these certain shoes. And they had one last pair of these really fancy shoes that she wanted. And so she bought them because it was like this, this, she didn't want to miss out and she bought them and she took it home and she looked in the box and there was only one shoe in the box. And so she went back to the store and she was praying to God that she could find the other shoe and, and they did, she didn't know. And, and, and so sure enough, she got to the front and they said, well, let's look in the back. And they found the shoe that was the match to the one she had bought. And she praised God for <laughs> God's grace to her to find this other shoe. And I was hearing this story in the midst of this, these people in poverty. And I, I was pissed off. I was so angry. And I just walked out of the room. I just walked out and I, I'm like, I can't believe it, God. This is so, that's the stupidest story I've ever, doesn't have person have any sensitivity. These people barely have shoes. And she's talking about these fancy shoes that she has, you know, dozens of. And I was really, really mad. The, the leader of my program, Frank, he came out. And he's like, what's going on? And I'm like, I, that's a stupid story. I can't believe. Why do you invite these people here? That is so insensitive. And he's like, well, he's like, you've got to, you've got to start with people where they're at. You know, he says, you weren't always where you're at. And that's where this woman is at. And if she's there, that's where we have to start with her and teaching her about other things that are more important. But you got to give her the grace of where she's at. And I'm like, I don't want to. I, I said, she's stupid. And he's like, but think about your life. And then I thought back about when I was just early at, as a Christian and the stupid things that I believed and that I prayed for. I remember praying for a sports car from God. And I'm embarrassed to say that nowadays. And that was just like a stupid prayer. Uh, I said, God, if you give me, if you let me get this sports car, I'll put a bumper sticker that glorifies you on the back and, and, and I'll do it, God. And, and I got the car. It was not a great, you know, it was, it was an old car, but I got it. And I never put the bumper sticker on there. <laughs> anyway, and now, now I would never pray for that. It's the kind of thing that just embarrasses me. But so I, I realized I got to start with people yeah. and, and train them up. Uh, now, he did say to me, Frank said, now, if this woman comes back in 10 years and she's still telling stories like that, then we need to we need to confront her and we need to talk to her face to face and say this. You got to grow up. This oh. is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, you've got to progress in your faith. And so I so that that was a good uh, lesson that Frank taught me. That is a good lesson. Yeah. All of us have stories like that. I think that when we yeah, we all started at a, at a certain place that was. Uh, like babies, you know, yep. and I find people all the time in the church that are kind of stuck in those places. And I'm like, you're praying for that? Or have you even read the scriptures? Have you even studied what Jesus talks about? You know, I, I but, I, you know, if they if they if they're willing to grow, then it's great. But if they've been there in the church for 20, 30, 40 years, I have a low tolerance. <laughs> I need more tolerance, but I have a low tolerance for that. It's 
I can't believe that at one time you prayed for a sports car. <laughs> I did. So, it's so unlike you right now. <laughs> I did. I prayed for a sports car. I was. It was That's like God. And I was so sincere about it. I prayed so hard. <laughs> well, and and so a lot of these stories, uh, like with this woman, I I just felt like. It seems like the wrong place, the wrong place for a woman talking about shoes, the wrong place for a guy who's afraid of dogs, the wrong place uh, walking around with an alcoholic who's who's not going to change his life, the wrong place uh, cussing up a storm and playing a, a game with teenagers in the street. These these are all the wrong places for 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 a gringo for for me, but but they ended up being the right time for that. I mean, it was the right time for me to learn about hospitality. It was the right time for me to struggle with God over what God does do for people and what God doesn't do for people. It was the right time to mature in who I was as a person uh, of this world, not just an American, but a person of the world, a person who cares about everybody, who wants compassion and justice and mercy to flow in God's world. It was the right time for that, even if it was the wrong place. Yeah, those are those stories are all evidences of that for sure. And I thank God for it. Well, thank you, Brad. Um, I'm going to turn it off now. <laughs> <laughs> turn it off now. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>